0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now, Horns of Odin is a family-run business, and we sell Norse-inspired products. Particularly, we specialise in handmade, handcrafted drinking horns, which I make myself. But alongside that, we have a huge clothing collection. We sell a bunch of different meads. We've got beers and ales. We've got handmade jewellery, books, artwork. So if you like the sound of any of that, pop over to the website. It's www.hornsofodin.com. If you if you like anything, pop it in the cart. Use the code HORNS10 at checkout, and you're going to get 10% off your entire order. Now, that's HORNS10. It's going to get you 10% off your entire order. It's just a little thank you from us for listening to the podcast. The podcast is also brought to you by our website, com. Some of you have already seen. We've got a bunch of different merch on there. We've got some T-shirt designs. Now, we've just added a brand-new limited edition T-shirt. So there's only going to be 100 of these printed, After that, we're never going to print them again, so just pick one up whilst you can. So the design has been done by last week's guest, Jakub, aka Raven from the North, who was on last week's episode. It's a one-off design, just pop over to the website, have a look, it's Odin and his two Ravens, it's a really beautiful t-shirt, I'm definitely going to get one, I think we've sold probably about 25% of them already, so just pop over to NordyMythologyPodcast.com and have a look and see what you think. Right, let's jump into the show. (music) Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Hornsvoden, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Matthias Nordvig.
1: Hello. Our guest this time is uh, Dr. Jennifer Snook, uh, who is a sociologist um, and a senior lecturer at Grinnell College uh, here in the United States, and uh, who has also authored the book. American heathens the politics of identity in a pagan religious movement and we're going to talk with Jennifer about what what heathens and 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 uh, the modern application of nordic mythology into people's lives is all about and so yeah welcome to the show Jennifer
2: thanks thanks for having me this is going to be fun
0: well hopefully yeah i think there's Definitely some questions I want to ask and, and get to, so I'm looking forward to it. Before we jump into like American heathenism in particular, I think we should kind of do a box ticking exercise of giving definition to some of the terms that we'll probably come across, because I know for me, you hear kind of heathen, pagan, also true, um, and I don't know if there's a difference between them. I don't know what each one necessarily means in a traditional sense and in a modern sense, so I think for for myself and for for the listeners, if we could kind of get a a rough basic understanding on each of them as we go forward, it's gonna make it a little bit easier to kind of follow and understand so I was gonna, let's right. let's start with heathen
2: okay, so heathens are sort of the specific kind of paganism <laughs> under that umbrella of people who um sort of look to inspiration to pre-Christian Northern European um, paganisms, like the stories and the folklore and the, um, you know, myths and legends of, about the, the gods and the heroes and and the creatures up there. Um, and that's their, that's sort of the foundation for their spiritual uh, practice, their worldview. It's, it's a whole sort of cultural system um, based on those myths and, and then of course all of the assumptions around what it what it meant to be heathen back then and then how people adapt that to sort of a modern interpretation. So there's and I imagine a lot of your audience is heathen.
0: <laughs> I imagine. Mateus, were you gonna
1: Yeah, and and of course this is this is sort of where where we run into I would say in modern times, uh, contemporary times, we run into a bit of a, a discrepancy between what 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 is popularly um, otherwise understood when somebody uses the, the, the word "heathen," right? Mm-hmm. They've had there's this, that whole like uh, cultural context that has been um, established by uh, uh, Christianity being the dominant religion at least in uh, in in Europe and North America for some time now. Um, so, so sometimes, um, I think, um, at least for, for, for Scandinavia, what we see is also that people use the term heathen simply to, to, to denote that they're an atheist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was one thing I, I I kind of read as well was some people use that, which seemed kind of wrong in my eyes. I guess it, in my basic understanding, I've kind of always seen it as a heathen is somebody who doesn't on like the the main three religions kind of judaism islam and christianity anyone outside of that would be heathen but still believing in some sort of god whereas an atheist would be somebody who believes in no god so i always kind of wonder how people conflate the two or put the two together
2: yeah, I think that that use is, is in the United States as well when they talk about when people say heathen you'll hear them call people like a godless heathen. Um and that's usually in reference to just people who are not Christian specifically. Um and or or people who who are somehow immoral or sinful. And I think contemporary heathen pagans um actually kind of get a kick out of you uh, out of the take the taking back of the term heathen. Um acknowledging that, yeah, I mean they're not wrong. Like we are not Christian. We are godless in that way of that God. Um, but it but it is, you know, it's it's kind of a, a reclaiming of the term. But it also has some historical relevance because of the way the Romans used to talk about um Germanic tribes. I'm sure Matthias has more to say about that.
0: Okay, Matthias, give us I was say, give us the definition of What a heathen would have been in in the Viking Asian, I guess.
1: Well, I'm going to go all the way back to Roman times, right? Because what we're seeing in Roman times um, uh, in that period in the 300s where Christianity is um, slowly gaining traction, actually quickly at that point gaining traction in, in the Roman Empire, taking over. Um, uh, religious life and, and soon thereafter, also, uh, what we could call, I guess, secular life in different ways. Um, what we see is that people who still follow the old gods, um, in the Roman empire are referred to as paganus. Um, and that means sort of something like hillbilly, basically. It's like, uh, it's, it's those backwards people out there in the hills who still follow the old gods. Um, that is, uh, that then sort of is, is the, the word that is used for basically any kind of polytheist, people who believe in multiple gods, um, in, in the Roman, general Roman area, right? And remember that stretches far into what is, uh, today called the Middle East as well. Um, and then we have these Germanic tribes up north, um, on the other side of the Alps and, uh, and the Rhine, um, river in Germany. And uh, they are in contact with the Romans. And the Romans, uh, as they have converted to Christianity, are, of course, referring to these Germanic uh, peoples as Paganos, because they don't believe in just one God. They believe in multiple gods and all that stuff. And that's where we see some kind of translation into the Germanic languages, um, where heathen then emerges as a word that is being used. Um, and I think the first literary evidence of the word is actually, uh, Wulfila, um, the, the, the Gothic missionary who writes the Gothic bike Bible. Um, he, he uses the word, but it seems actually in, in that context to mean a person of the commons. So somebody who, uh. Not a a hillbilly like Paganus, but uh, somebody who um, is uh, is associated with the uh, the community, and so there is something to be said for a, a Germanic original Germanic meaning of the word because you, you may English speakers may uh, note that heathen sounds pretty similar to heath. Um, uh, these. Uh, these areas uh, that nowadays are uh, sort of in northern Europe, at least like relatively desolate areas. Um, but, but that word seems to have been used for the common uh, grounds that you would use for grazing and other things in those small agrarian communities that were living in northern Europe at the time. Uh, so there's something to be said for that word actually having something to do with community rather than you know hillbilly <laughs> in a in a germanic sense but of course there's a translation that then happens and uh and, and heathen becomes the same as paganus in uh in latin and uh and that's how it's also used in um in the old nordic languages in the viking age heathen um, means uh, some some kind of hillbilly. And when you start l- reading the saga literature, that's also where we like, find those stories where it's always, you know, King Olav is uh, on some kind of journey far into the north, and then he happens upon a small island somewhere where there's this little backwards community that worships, worships a horse penis and all that stuff. <laughs> that's usually how it goes in the stories, right?
0: So did he then start out, I guess, as a derogatory term to be used negatively towards a group of people? I think so.
1: I, I, I think I think that's that's when um um I mean that there's an internal use in, in the Germanic peoples and their languages, which would also include the English. Um but then uh but then it 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 soon becomes it's sort of like the Germanic translation of Paganus. Um, and and then uh, is used in a derogatory sense um, by mm-hmm. by the urban communities
0: at least. Okay, so it it seems that pagan and heathen is almost the same thing, at least originally. Is that still the case now? Is there is there a difference between heathen and pagan today? Because for me, they both seem the same, but. I see well, you right. uh, shaking your head, Jennifer.
2: Yeah, paganism is kind of the umbrella term, at least it, when s- scholars who study uh, sort of pagan studies is is sort of this umbrella term of all the different kinds of pre-Christian or, or you know polytheistic, pantheistic faith systems, kind of under that umbrella, everywhere from neo-paganism, Wicca, native faith movements. Um, to, you know, uh, Druids, uh, Celtic Reconstructionists, you know, um, all of those and heathens. But heathens are specific to sort of the Germanic region, right? That that's when you talk okay. about paganisms, you're talking about heathenry is Germanic neo, neo-paganism, although some people bristle at the neo, it's new. It's an, It's new. I mean, the way we're doing it, right? Because... It's based on these old things, but it's really a modern iteration of bits and pieces, right? And so, you know, Celtic Reconstructionists would also be pagan, but they would just be also Celtic Reconstructionists, right? It's just heathens use the term heathen instead of Germanic pagan, although some of them do call themselves Germanic pagans instead or Nordic pagans or whatever, but heathenry is kind of more of a a broad term for those types of paganisms
0: okay perfect that make that makes sense so heathen is a sect of paganism
2: i mean yeah it's a way to put it both of us are kind of like yeah i mean you could say that but we probably wouldn't use the term sect
1: well yeah so i mean in in the history of religion i would say that you could use the word sect without it having a negative Mm -hmm. context um also Mm in uh in i mean to an extent in in other languages that makes sense but Mm -hmm. i think you know in 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 american english it's very it's very sort of like this is a bunch of crazies living on a compound somewhere
0: okay okay
1: now that's not like
2: we are the jehovah's witnesses of paganisms it's not it's not quite the same as it would be you know when you're when you're thinking about those sort of mainstream, um, you know, faith currents, like, you know, it's a it is a type, a type mm-hmm. of pagan. Okay, it
0: wasn't. It definitely wasn't intended.
2: No, 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 way. it's fine. Um, I
0: just couldn't. I just
2: couldn't agree with it without no, I, the asterisk. Fine.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. So, okay, we've kind of defined what heathenism or heathen is, and pagan. So. What's also true
1: so also true is the um uh, in modern context Icelandic word for people who uh believe in and worship the Nordic gods um that's sort of a very just, distilled
0: just before you jump too far um did it exist is it a traditionally existing thing is also true something that existed in the viking age it, a bit as called that yeah no it's that that's not
1: uh, what what anything was called and and it's not even originally an Icelandic word actually it's a, it's originally a Danish word so in the 19th century um a, a different scholars talking about the what we today call the pre-christian uh, Scandinavian religions uh, we say plural religions instead of religion that's a relatively new thing too um they back in the 19th century they would talk about it as, uh, in 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 danish um, as asleier uh, or asetro so asleier means uh the teachings of the Aesir, the primary uh, uh, group of gods in, in nordic mythology or um means the belief uh, in those gods. That's the word that they would use. And then that uh, was adopted in, in Iceland as well as, as something um, that uh, that Icelandic scholars that at the time were primarily sort of like located in Denmark because Iceland was part of the, the Danish uh, kingdom at the time. Um, they, they would be using that term as well. And that's how Ausatru then became um, a, a word in Icelandic. And then... You have the uh, the 20th century rolling around where people start actually, you know, defining a modern, modern belief or belief system. Um, or sometimes, especially in Iceland, maybe even just like a, an idea of some sort of like cultural adherence that has nothing to do with Christianity. And and that's how also true then becomes a word that is used um, in Iceland and in the rest of Scandinavia and also pretty much at the same time when when uh, um, the the early uh, Scandinavian um, also true communities and the Icelandic also of Fjellagir for instance uh, sort of formed and and gained recognition at that same time we also see that word um, precipitating into North America and being used in that would be in the seventies, nineteen seventies, and so so that's that's really how that word comes into play, and I think today, uh, at least here in the United States, the the meaning of also true, as opposed to Norse pagan or heathen, is very distinct. Actually, I I I I, I run into a lot of people who who have a very sort of distinct idea of what also true is as opposed to some some other ways of like venerating the nordic gods whereas in scandinavia that's not a distinction that is being made like heathen also true uh th- those kinds of things they're all the same uh over there um but hmm. but yeah i don't know what what do you think of that jennifer
2: well i'm thinking of at least in my field work a lot of a lot of heathens using, of course the Americans pronounce it Asatru because that's phonetic, right? Um, think, you know, how they, they identified it as, as Asatru or because they, that, that that that's kind of just what they knew it was called. Um, and, you know, whether that was specific to Scandinavia or whether they were also using sources from, from Germany or from Britain or whatever, they didn't, they didn't really make the they didn't articulate those distinctions very frequently um but but some of them do like now that's changed right you know just in the last few years um people are thinking of that as more specific to scandinavia but but i think what we're getting at dan is that there's there's asatrú if you think about the sort of the scandinavian stuff but then there's so many other different flavors of heathenry Right. Mm-hmm. There's like people who um, for who do like uh, kind of um, Germanic based, like German, German sort of based heathenry. And they call it like continental. It's, like, it's a different sort of a different flavor. And then people who are like, you know, trying to figure out how to do the how to how to really sort of revive or pay homage to at least the. um the heathenry of their Norman ancestors, right? Or, I mean, it gets, it can get very specific, mm-hmm. but they're all heathen.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. And just uh, to roll back to something that you then you asked um, what, what was the term that, if there was a term that was used sort of in the Viking Age, the only thing that comes close is uh, a, a couple of saga mentions from the 13th century, of course, um, uh, of of uh, what they call uh, fortsider, uh, which basically means ancient custom. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is contrasted in the sagas with, with nisider, which means the new custom, which is Christianity. So, so there's that distinction that shows up. And that word fortsider, or those two words, um, ancient custom is also being used, um, by, by different groups, um, in, in different places, uh, uh, in modern times to denote, um, something perhaps even more specifically Nordic sometimes, or mm-hmm. maybe even less specifically Nordic. Um, I've seen it tr- been translated into Old English and, uh, Old Saxon and Old High German, as well as uh, by by certain groups here in the the U.S. who uh, closely associate with these parts of of Germany, for instance, and and uh, and England. So so that's also sort of like another way to, to add flavor to to your particular
0: brand of of this <laughs> <heat and> reading. <laughs> Sounds like it's uh, in true fashion complicated. Okay, so so here is here is one. Do you do you have to believe in a god to be heathen? Like t- to be classed as heathen, would you have to believe that Odin Thor, for a physically, well, existed somewhere, or could you be? I guess going back to how we said earlier, could you be atheist and not, or maybe not even atheist, maybe more agnostic in and accepting that you don't know what's out there, but still be heathen. And not necessarily believe in like the existence of Odin as a real as a physical being.
2: Well, I, I'm gonna say it's complicated, but yeah, you can. And there are a lot of There's even a Facebook group called Atheopagans, which are basically atheist pagans. Um, how, <laughs> how how does that work? Um and, and this is this is another one of the many, 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 many hundreds of things that heathens fight about internally. Um, Because a lot of them. I bet there's
0: so much fighting.
2: Yeah, just you name it. So it's. They. Some of them think, yes, you absolutely have to believe in the gods in order to be heathen, because what's the point of you if you don't? Why are you even here? Like, get off my lawn, right? And others are like, well, they're more like (laughs) archetypes, right? Like, I want to kind of see the gods as sort of archetypes, you know, um, standing in for these. Sort of lofty human, you know, capacities, capabilities, this sort of ideal type, you know, um, like love or compassion or war or whatever. They're just they're just stand ins. And then other people um, just kind of want to, you know, like whatever God schmads, they really just kind of more want to do sort of the animism. Let's talk about nature, the spiritual essence of all the things um, and kind of think about it as a cultural system and some of them are some people are just really attracted to the aesthetic of heathenry um and and also the what they perceive as the the kind of code of ethics the way of being um and again it's it's in every way subcultural right it's it's an identity it's a collective identity it's a community um, that people identify with and belong to. And then they just within that have quite a divergence of beliefs. And so, um, this was actually a question that I had not too long ago, like how many, how can you, how many heathens and or pagans in general really are like atheist. Um, and so that's when I launched that survey that I had going, um, it was before the pandemic. Um, but uh, I had a survey that I put out, and, and that was one of the things: is what do you believe about the gods? Do you believe that they're real, you know, embodied beings? Do you believe that they're archetypes? Do you believe that they're, um, you know, just sort of ideas uh, about sort of you know things to aspire toward? I, I don't know. I all these things, um, and I collected about twelve hundred responses. So, if at some point I actually get to that data. Um, we'll actually have a more concrete picture of, of what people do believe, like how many atheist heathens were there, at least in that sample. 1200 is not a bad sample.
0: No, I, I guess I, I'm just trying to figure out if I would be classed as heathen or not. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, I think people would probably, other people would probably class me as heathen, I guess, just on appearance and doing the podcast, and what I do for a job. But I, th- I think my my like my personal, I would say I'm probably agnostic in belief. Um, I think when I was younger, I was very heavily, I was, I'm a stubborn bastard. So I was very much atheist when I was young. I was like, no, there's nothing, nothing. And then as I grew older and got a little bit wiser, I think, I think I then was just more of the, I don't know, and I'm happy not knowing, I don't need to know. I just it is it is what it is. But I, I also think that there are things you can learn from the mythology in a sense of like morals and lessons. And you can learn things from these figures like Odin and Thor that you can apply to your life. You don't have to necessarily believe in it as a god that existed or doesn't exist or however you can just they're they're almost these created characters. They do exist in no matter how you look at it, they. They do exist in some capacity, whether it's a physical god or it's just a creation of man. These things do now exist somewhere, and whether it's in your you know it's in your imagination, so they do kind of you can apply these things that you learn from them without having to necessarily believe that they still exist. Does that right. make sense? I hope that makes sense. It,
2: it does. <laughs> it, and it sounds just like the conversations that heathens have among themselves, right? Just thinking through what are all the possible ways to be heathen? What are all the possible ways to believe? Um, and really, it, it to a certain degree, it gets at the foundation of the definition of religion itself like thinking through religion as something that doesn't it doesn't require deity even though a lot of people want to say that it does but it does require some sense of the sacred some sense of transcendence and some sense of what i i prefer to call not instead of the supernatural the super mundane right where you're actually you know, this this sort of something larger than you. And, of course, a lot of heathens don't want to talk about the supernatural anyway because they believe that, you know, the supernatural, like, what's that? Like, uh, you know, we've got the natural world, which is awesome enough, and everything super to that would be what? Land spirits and all that. That's part of the natural world. So it's mm-hmm. still, right, we're not supernatural, we're natural.
1: And um, And... and- Oh, Sorry, I just wanted to add, I mean, this is also conversations that, that mm-hmm. people had in, in, in pre-Christian Rome. Uh, you know, uh, be, before um, um, Romans converted to Christianity and Greeks converted to Christianity, they were having these discussions over and over and making fun of each other for them, by the way. Uh, there, as, we do, nobody, as we do today. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Nobody was talking so much shit on other pagans as pagans themselves back then. <laughs> Or today.
2: <laughs> or today. <laughs> yes, that also no,
1: hasn't changed. Yeah. yeah. So so but this is also, if you ask me, one of the sort of like the beauties of this is like a continual conversation about what it actually mm-hmm. means to think about the world. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. because that's essentially what it comes down to, if you ask me, you're thinking mm-hmm. thinking through ways of thinking about the world. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an interesting an interesting topic. Um I just think some people probably ruin it sometimes by getting a little too stuck in their way and saying, well, my way is the way that everyone else should do it rather than it just being open and allowing people to kind of interpret it their own way.
2: Well, it's all about identity. It's all about identity and about creating authenticity and feeling ownership over particular, uh, you know, boundaries of these identities, right? (sighs) And so people feel they're very invested in them um, and, you know, they, they, they want people off their lawn, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's just, that's totally normal. Like every subculture has infighting about who's more, who's more punk rock, you know, like who's more authentic. Um, So heathens are not special in that regard.
0: No, absolutely not. I, I think I've said this before, the... I think the more you know, the less you care to kind of argue about it. So I think like a lot of the the arguments about this stuff that you see kind of the main place would be like the Facebook groups. It's people who know a little bit and then they like to defend what they know to the death Mm -hmm. and kind of push that onto other people because that's what they know and they cling to it. and, And everyone else needs to know what I know. And I and I and I've noticed this change in myself. The more I've done the podcast with Matthias, the more I've learned. And the more I've kind of I've changed. Like I've lost the need to kind of tell people this, and I'm just like, uh, you know what? I I know, so I don't really care if you know. But I think that that does. Like I've noticed that. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I've kind of like, I've noticed that in myself. This this the more I know, the less I feel the need to kind of mm-hmm. dictate to others how things should be.
2: Yeah, that's, that's funny because I it, it makes me think of all of the things that the heathens that I sort of studied and hung out with for all those years that made it into the, the book, that the things that they thought they knew about old Norse religion, pre-Christian old Norse religion, or the things they thought they knew about Norse mythology, that you know, and I'm a sociologist, so I wasn't really digging too deeply in what they, what claims they were making. My whole job was to talk about what those claims meant in sort of a larger scope, right? Um, and how those claims were connected to identity, community, etc. cetera. But then as I thought about those things, I, I I recall like reading on Facebook conversations people would have, particularly with Mateus and other scholars who who, that's That's their bread and butter, right, is Old Norse religion. And they would ask him these questions that everybody that I had studied took for granted as true. And he would just piece apart, bit by bit, why that was bullshit, not true, never happened. And I just remember just this feeling like, oh my god. Like, like what would they all say if they knew this much? (laughs) If they knew that everything that they hold sacred is based upon... This illusion of continuity, this, this illusion of, of truth. Like it's not, it's none of it. Like I, I just had this epiphany of like, we're making it all up. Like I knew we were making it up, but I didn't know the extent to which we were making it up. And <laughs> and then at that point I was just like, well, you know, why Yeah, fuck, why bother?
0: I think you have to be, a, you have to be willing to you have to be comfortable in saying, you know, we don't know certain things. Whereas I just think some people just aren't happy to do that. They want like things in boxes and they want it to be perfect and neat when it's not.
1: I think one thing that's important to keep in mind here is that, uh, as somebody who's a a scholar of this material, I, I was once, uh, just a, Dumbass, who didn't know anything myself, right? <laughs> that that I, I mean, I've come to this knowledge; wasn't born with it. So it's mm. like I, I I was also there at some point. I I'm, I mean, I've been heathen most of my life myself, and uh, and I I have believed uh, things um, that nowadays make me cringe Thanks. and <laughs> things, um, and and so so. I think that's, you know, it's, if, if you want to, if you want to relate to a tradition of any kind, you should do your homework, if you ask me. Like that, that's, that's sort of the discourage of modern human beings in general at this Mm -hmm. point, because uh, we have been through so much modernity at this point that, that, uh, that like we have to actually like piece stuff together now, um, ourselves.
2: yeah. The thing is, though, is you read any of these forums where new heathens are going to, and they're saying, hey, I'm new to this. What should I read first? And the reading list is always, oh, read the Poetic Edda. And read, like, it, you know, you, you know, there's sort of this, the the kind of heathen Bible, if you will, is read the Poetic Edda, then maybe read some sagas. And then you know, especially the Havamal, like that's going to be your, that's going to be your 10 commandments and then you're, you're all set. And then from that interpretation comes this limited understanding that you're getting at. Right.
0: I would say 90 plus percent don't even go and read those though. I think they ask, what should I read? And then people get told and they look at the, they look at the book and go, ah, Carry not really be bothered with that and then just just on in the forums and learn things as they go and most of it is just wrong so they kind of learn on the fly and never really get around to even reading any original sources but they're just learning from other people they've never learned from the original sources and it just snowballs into this big pile of just mess because I, I think people yeah people people are lazy though they want to learn until it actually comes down to learning and doing the hard work and then suddenly they don't want to learn it's like if you look in any rune group on facebook or anywhere like that it will be a group of people saying i want to translate dave into runes or i want to translate i want to make a bind room for my like my dad and my son or something like that and can you do it for me and people be like oh well try yourself, read this book. And it's like, oh, but can you not just do it from here? And that's kind of like how people act now. They just don't want to do the legwork themselves.
2: I mean, that's true to an extent, but then on the other side of it, like I've known lots of heathens who have taught themselves Old Norse so that they could read some of the original stuff. The The problem I think happens when... All these people are reading all this stuff, but they're not asking the scholars whose lifeblood it is to put that stuff in context and and mm-hmm. understand a more nuanced interpretation of it. And what stuff has been sort of thrown out and what stuff has been, you know, like the cutting edge, right? Those conversations aren't because ha- they're inaccessible to a lot of people.
0: Well, that's one reason why we started this. Yeah, and 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 I would
1: just want to add a couple of things here. As a scholar of this field, uh, one of the just interesting things—just
0: not you, because uh... you, you're too
1: busy. <laughs> no. So, so, no. What I wanted to say is that, as somebody who observes these uh, groups um, of people out there who believe in this stuff, um, um, as well as being part of them myself, and, and being a scholar and all that stuff. One of the interesting things that I've noted over the years is that um, modern Heathens, uh, uh, also to whatever they call themselves, they're usually somewhere around fifty to seventy years behind in, in, in theoretical developments in the field of Old Norse uh, studies um, and, and religious studies in general. Right. So, so, so this is, this is the interesting thing. And it looks like it's actually changing now where we're seeing the introduction. It's, it's moving faster. And we're mm-hmm. basically seeing the introduction of, of, uh, of sort of more up to date uh, material. Um. But but just go back ten twenty years ago, and mm-hmm. and it was very obvious to me that they, like I, I could like see how what this person is saying right over here in the corner is basically a riff off of uh, Solfus Buke, uh, and his theories on Old Norse mythology back in the late nineteenth century. That kind of stuff, like you could pinpoint it in time where people's ideas came from.
2: Mm-hmm. And Matthias. What what do you think accounts for that sh- shift that that people are that you say people are having now?
1: I think people are getting more educated. Um, there are there are more uh, people who come from the healing groups and actually take educations um, at college level in 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 different contexts. We're seeing a lot more mm-hmm. of that.
2: They bring that back to their communities.
1: Yes, and I think that's a positive development, uh, to be honest, because it, uh, at least it uh, it uh, mm-hmm. generates more thought on on mm-hmm. these subjects.
2: Well, and that's probably only gonna gonna continue because of the I imagine like there's probably a wave of new heathens coming right out of the History Channel's of the Vikings and the Valhalla video game and all these other sort of media exposures to the stuff that have renewed this new kind of
0: passion for it mm-hmm. I, th- I think you've got to be willing to learn though as well because some people just get into it and then kind of put blinkers on and refuse like i've had i i remember one particular with there was a discussion about like the blood eagle and people were there was like this this post about how something or other and i was like okay like we've literally just done an episode with an expert on this so i like posted posted the podcast and was like look listen to this, you know, it it probably didn't happen. It's pretty much medically impossible to do it. And then someone was like, no, I'm not, I'm not listening to a podcast, but I'm like, no dude, like there's a doctor of fucking Nordic studies and a literal guy who's just fucking studied it. Like you can't get better than this. He's like, no, not do not listening to it. Like I, I, what I know is right. And I'm like, it's just like, well, what do you do in that situation? You just, you can't help people that, don't want to at least try and learn something new it's just i've read this this is what i know it's true that's it
2: there's just so much information out there too and i mean i think we've all been in the i've been in the position of scholars who are studying heathenry in the academy have don't know who i am and haven't read my book so it's like they and it's like have they just they just they didn't find it. They haven't heard of it, you know? So I do think that there's a, there, there's just too much out there for people to kind of know what to hone in on. Um, Cause certainly I'm not the only person who's, who's done this. I mean, we've got, we've got this one here, right? Is that backwards? Mm-hmm. You guys see that backwards? The Norse no. revival?
0: Norse revival.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of scholarship out there. It's just what, what do you, what do you actually narrow down to?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's a good way to segue into your book. Um, so tell us—I don't mean tell us a little bit about it. I guess.
2: Uh, okay. So it's um, so it's based on sort of ethnographic fieldwork that I did, uh, hanging out with uh, American heathens starting in around two thousand two. Um and I was in their living rooms and I was babysitting their kids and I was doing rituals with them in their yards and I was going to sort of big gatherings. Um I went to gatherings in Minnesota and in Kansas and down in, in on the coast of Mississippi and in New Mexico and in Colorado, and so I was just all over the place. Um Going, going to these gatherings and just talking to people and, and hanging out and, you know, of course, just asking an obnoxious amount of questions. And um, also scouring old publications and reading sort of old conversations that people had had and um, talking to people who'd been in, in the scene for, you know, decades. Right. And I so so that's the sort of the basis for the research. And then from that, I kind of put together some themes of what seemed to be patterns of things that were important to people or that had broader implications. So um, there's a chapter in here on this idea about reconstructionism, that you can actually reconstruct um, a paganism like this from these old sources. So pretty much just rehashing this conversation we just had. Um, But you know from a heathen perspective this tension between people who um are just kind of doing a, a heathen flavored neo paganism with lots of other sort of um trappings from from wicca and and other things um versus the people who are trying to find some kind of purist heathen you know essence in their work and so that chapter complicates that because you know as we just discussed it's it's quite it's nearly impossible right i have stuff in here on the impact of the internet on how people get together and the forms that this that heathenry as an as as a new religious movement thinking about it using that conceptual framework um sort of ebbs and flows to take on these different sort of shapes and organizational forms um i talk about gender and women um, coming to heathenry and and seeing it as a form of of sort of empowerment, giving sort of voice and agency, uh, with sort of the the images of this the Valkyries and the warrior women, um, and um, thinking about how they sacralize domesticity, like being in the home, like from something that you have to do as an obligation, because. That's what we sort of, that's how we, you know, the roles we give women, whether they want them or not, to thinking about that as more of of control and ownership, right? So that's part of the rhetoric of a lot of heathen women talking about being a strong heathen woman is like, this home is mine, I have the keys. So it's a shift in language of thinking about doing stuff that you're going to do anyway, but thinking about it from a, a place of... Empowerment and control. There's a chapter in here that goes through the long. Can I?
0: Yeah. I was just jump onto that. I think that must be, whether it's true or not, like the, the shield maidens, of Valkyries, like how, however accurate that is, that must be a really big factor into a lot of women getting into heathenism because it is, you have these very powerful female figures and this idea of women were equal in the Viking age to men almost. And it's mm-hmm. that must drive women into kind of being, a, being interested in it and then learning more. And and that must be a huge factor in that, in, in kind of like pulling that, you know, females into it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of the women that I talked to, um, you know, had had that to say about how empowering it was um, and how it gave them a sense of not just being a badass, but being in control of mm-hmm. of otherwise uncontrollable situations. Um, I talk a lot in here about race and ethnicity, the concept of whiteness and thinking of, of heathenry. Uh, it really complicates how white people are trying to revive a, a kind of ethnic identity, you know, to to look, looking at heathenry as kind of a continuity to these ancestors that they had from a place they've never been, but that they're somehow connected to as a way of kind of reformulating race in their minds instead of just being white.
0: Well, it's almost, you have to be, I think we spoke about this with Kai, that you're almost white Christian and that's very much kind of the identity that most white people have, whether you're Christian or not. Nowadays, mm-hmm. like the, the, The European kind of, especially in Europe, it's white Christian and everything before that kind of got eradicated. Yes. So it's almost like you say, finding that individuality of white culture that's not Christian because it does exist and it did exist, but it's also it's also showing that and finding that without saying white people are the best, fuck everyone else. So it's doing it in the right way.
2: Which is really hard, especially in the American context, because we have this really complicated baggage of of whiteness, of race, um, you know, where where whiteness didn't exist, as you said, as it wasn't a pre-colonial identity. It's a product of colonialism. It's a product of of sort of Christianity and slavery, um, constructing a whiteness against which they could measure blackness. Right, that 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 came out of that institution, and in this country, you can't. There's there is no such thing as, for example, a European race. European is not a race, and so when people want to be like, well, I have Northern European ancestors. Well, cool. Like, what kind? You know, because you're not just you. You can't just say I'm European, and then that that's not a race, right? There's nothing to be proud of by just being white if that's the conflation you're making. So I complicate it in that chapter because for a lot of people, they really, they want that kind of, that kind of ethnic identity. And, and this is in the, in the literature on um, on race and ethnicity, particularly among white folks. You know, they've, they've talked for a while about how third generation immigrants often want to reclaim their ethnic identity, that their parents didn't really have and their grandparents tried to get rid of to assimilate, Mm -hmm. but then come third generation, they want it back. And so they do the work to try and sort of reinvigorate that identity. And for heathens, that identity just takes kind of a uniquely heathen flavor. Um, But that, but it's hard to do that in this context where ethnicity is so often conflated with race, right? That those, those are, two different categories of thing where race is based on, um, dynamics of power and oppression and ethnicity is the bearer of culture. So you've got these two competing ideas that people just don't understand, um, how to really work with. Um, so that's, that's some of what's in in the book. I probably talked way more than you wanted about that. That's that's what's in there now.
0: I think we should start my first question and then we'll work as we're through and I'm sure we'll probably circle back to the whole racing. Um, like American heathen, Mm -hmm. what would you, how would you describe that as being different to maybe like European heathen or just heathen in general? Is it its own thing?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because it's in this place. And so every heathenry, wherever it happens, is going to take on the local flavor of the sort of the politics and the economy and just sort of the the zeitgeist of where it is, right? And so for American heathens, well, they are Americans doing heathenry. So they're going to do it with a lot of these sort of American conundrums, right? They're doing it with this sense of sort of rampant individualism right? Mm-hmm. In this system that really has this strong myth of meritocracy that's really beset a lot by these ideas of of race um, and nation. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a set of unique problems. And maybe they're maybe not un- unique, unique, but they're American and it creates a kind of American heathen. And also the fact that heathens who are heathen here, they're not they're not over there. They're not in the place where heathenry comes from. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of things that they can't take for granted, including the ownership of a place. So there's lots of romanticizing and imagining and lots of pilgrimages to Iceland, lots of getting (laughs) your DNA tests done to show that that seems to be a
0: popular one.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And... You know, and again, this—it's—it's it's a crisis of modernity. It's a crisis of sort of identity in the here and now, um, just trying to figure out how to claim a, a, a slice of self, right? Um, and so that's, I think, pretty unique. And also, there's not as much environmentalism um, in in this country, or among, uh, or among heathens. Um, probably more among sort of American druids than anyone else, but not, not as much among American heathens as perhaps other kinds of heathens. And they, they tended to be, at least in a lot of my work, um, I mean, they were, of course, a lot of people on the right and and some people on the left, and but a lot of people in the middle who were like libertarian, right? Which is also a special kind of American thing.
0: I I have no idea what libertarian is. So what is it in a nutshell? Is that possible? Just so I can
2: yeah, explain libertarians, Matthias. <laughs> oh shit.
0: <laughs> um.
1: So so. Um. Okay, libertarianism is 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 a uh, a minimalist state kind of concept, right? So, uh, uh get rid of uh, at least in sort of its most idealized version get rid of as as many constraints as the government can uh will will put on you and and basically shave it down to the bare minimum and we know this in European politics and in in different kinds of ways right i mean there there are different political platforms that that have similar ideas um and so, uh, uh, so, so that's that's sort of like a very broad, um, like flimsy way of, uh, of describing it. in in many In many contexts, I've actually seen uh, libertarianism sort of like uh, tipping towards various kinds of uh, of curious nationalisms and 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 other. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Things that, that that it does not seem to have been in its incipiency, so to speak, like when it was first conceived of as a, um, a, as a uh, as political philosophy that that has roots in ideas of the free market. Um, you know, you can throw guys like what Adam Smith and uh, probably Hobbes also philosophers mm-hmm. that they like right um uh, into that mix um and you nowadays you also find leftist libertarians so so mm-hmm. so, so that's sort of like a reinvention of anarcho-syndicalists a and that kind of stuff
2: pretty much you know government leave me alone you know just let us do let us do what we want i mean bare minimum control and and just organize shit but otherwise don't tell me what to do um and a lot of that does i mean there are a lot of like don't tell me what to do but also don't tell people who they can marry don't tell women what they can do with their bodies but also don't take my guns so there's some kind of there's some complexity to it right um and i think you know mateus can attest to this cuz the question is how american heathens are different um by by telling us how european heathens are different from american heathens since he's been around both
1: Right okay yeah so um um uh, one th- one note about like uh, uh, the social libertarians uh, um as they would be called right those those who are like don't t- t- tell women what to do with their bodies don't tell mm-hmm. people who to marry and also don't take my guns that's a lot of colorado in general um that's that's sort of uh, um yep. something that you see um broadly over here but going to the subject of like um, uh, the differences between American and 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 European uh, heathens, well, there are many. Uh, I would say one of the main ones, um, using Iceland as an example, I would say um, uh, if you go uh, to the uh, the some some events they put on um and you hang out with people i think you would find that their uh devotion to these gods uh, the icier is is uh all sort of like just non-existent compared to what you would find here in american communities um, because it's an entirely different sense of what it means to believe in gods, as we also touched upon earlier. Um, a lot of people in, in, in the, especially the Icelandic, but also the other Scandinavian communities are there more for the cultural flavor. Um, and, and you would find a lot who's, who definitely say, Oh, I don't believe in gods. That's, doesn't make any sense to me, and and similarly, you could also find groups like that uh, in the rest of Europe, um, because there is a stronger secularization in European society in general
2: mm-hmm.
1: compared to the United States of America. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Christians are very different in Europe, um, and this is something I don't think uh, Europeans and Americans really appreciate enough. That that you know the particular. Brands of, 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 crazy religiosity that you see in the United States are very, very minimal in, in Europe, comparatively at least. Right. Um, they might be changing a little bit, especially because we do see uh, various kinds of missionaries from the United States, you know, doing their work in Europe. Um, so, so we, we do have, uh, a, I, I think Denmark has a, has a is sort of like a growing uh, group of faith healers and that kind of crap. Um, but um, yeah, so, so that's, that's like attitude to religion is in and of itself uh, a, a thing that is actually quite different depending on where you are, which continent you, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're on. Um, but um um, aside from that, what, what we also see, as I mentioned before, these uh, these like, ways of distinguishing between, oh, I'm a Norse pagan, you're also true, you're a heathen, you're this, you're that, and so on, that's also less in in Europe. Um, uh, you can find communities in Spain or Italy that um, that identify as uh, Scandinavian or Germanic um also true pagan and uh largely unless unless they have uh, they, they are di- distinctly uh neo-nazis uh, they they tend to sort of uh, uh, fall in line with with what you also find in in Scandinavia um, largely if you ask me uh, so 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 that in that sense in in Europe um, there might actually be less difference between the groups uh, uh, uh mm-hmm even though that they belong to different mm-hmm. countries with very distinct different cultures um and, and and over here what you see is groups that that have uh, that have decided well we're this kind uh we have this kind of rules and we belong to this kind of imaginary past community mm-hmm. um it, in in one way or another and i say imaginary and in, in not necessarily in a, in a Derogatory sense, but in the sense of like, uh, um, uh, this is how, what we believe the past was was about. Basically, that that's that's how it works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can even like one of the okay. So I'm from Jutland, right? That's where I was born. Um, this like random peninsula that that juts out from uh, from Germany, right? And like I have over here, I've found um, groups like pagan or also true groups whatever you want to call them who identify as jutlandic pagans and i'm like what the fuck is that <laughs> <laughs> but this so 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 you should know. This, i guess so but so apparently like this is like this is like a group of people uh who's uh um who have traced their ancestry to that random ass peninsula from northern Europe, right? Um, uh, uh, and and then they have fashioned, based off of, of course, Norse mythology to some extent, they fashioned uh, a, a distinct Jutlandic flavor of that, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, uh, good for them, I guess. But uh, but as go. as somebody from Jutland, I I I don't, I
0: you don't know.
1: I don't understand.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Jennifer what do you think the reason is that there seems to be such an interest in in this kind of Norse heathenism I guess in America like you, like you say it's not mm-hmm. technically the land where it came from so right. what makes it what mm-hmm. makes it such a big because it is it does it certainly seems to be such a big thing um I can only go on my personal experience and kind of you know we ship a lot of products out to america it's it's mm-hmm. other than the uk america is by far our biggest our biggest market so there is obviously a huge interest there mm-hmm. um is there kind of a single thing we can point to to say this is why or is it just a multitude of different things
2: no yeah i mean i think it's it's everything that we've discussed thus far right thinking about um some kind of ethnic identity, a sense of belonging, um, you know, like creating a, kind of a connection to an imagined place and 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 people, um, you know, kind of imagining that you belong to a peoplehood, right? Uh, also, you know, it it the there's probably something about the the Viking aesthetic. And this idea of the warrior ethos that appeals to the American spirit um, that is, you know, I don't want to say warlike, but, you know, like uh, militant in that way um, than perhaps Europeans. Um, And I I do think that the aesthetic is appealing to a lot of people. Right. This idea of sort of it's kind of like, uh, you know, a bit more if you're gonna be a pagan, like this is the badass way to do it right I mean yeah, there's so much cool. more there's so much more, but that's just some <laughs> of the things off the top of my head
0: okay one thing I was going to ask was uh i think i've mentioned, I think I've mentioned this before as well kind of this I not necessarily that the current culture is that' it's negative to be a man, but this hyper masculinity is kind of frowned upon almost in current society. How do you think that plays a part into it? That kind of these Viking males were seen as quote unquote you know very masculine males. So this kind of almost not not in current times losing that, but some people it's kind of it can be seen as being negative. Do you think people go in that direction towards Vikings because of because of that? It's kind of another way to reclaim.
2: Right. There, there is a, there is a very special kind of American manhood that is sort of more, um, and, and scholars have documented this. I mean, Michael Kimmel wrote not too long ago, a book called Guyland, you know, and, and in, in his other work, you know, and other scholars have talked about sort of the crisis of masculinity, um, because men, over the last few decades, you know, their, their wages have stagnated, right? They're no longer single earner households, right? They're kind of no longer taken, they can't really take for granted totally that they're sort of the top of the, the top of the, the king of the mountain anymore, because now you've got a bunch of women and people of color and others that are demanding respect, demanding equal access, um so to a certain degree you know men have have had to cope with this sense of loss even if it's an imagined sense of loss of sort of power and and prestige over the last few decades um and heathenry this sort of viking manhood provides men with this sense of of masculinity that i think is is healing for some men um but at the same time is is easily abused right um i do think
1: so is that loss is is it actually imagined i mean, I mean it...
2: well not the economic stuff for sure that's real right and i think we can probably look at the stats and the and and the the configuration of of the country and who's in power and who's who was power in fortune 500 companies who's in power in the government who's in power in um in banking and you know all those things to see that it's still overwhelmingly white men now you know we see this as changing um but that change is what causes this backlash every time there's a front lash of progressive social change there's a backlash of people who feel as though something's being taken from them right um and that manifests in a lot of ways and it's not to say that all men are having those conscious feelings that they're thinking this through and like people are taking stuff from me but but it's this it's this crisis of masculinity you know writ large in um in the united states at least where heathenry is one avenue toward reclaiming a particular kind of manhood um now that that goes in a variety of ways right that can go in sort of the the biker gang, white supremacist way. And we do know that white in white supremacy, masculinity and misogyny and homophobia is all in bed together. Um, or it can go the way of just thinking of this as a, an expression of self, just like with the women, as we were discussing earlier, a sense of empowerment. Um but it doesn't – it's not necessarily connected with all the douchiness that comes with toxic masculinity, um, but but can be and often is. Right, yeah. And that's just part of the Americanness, the American thing, is this This whole mascul- masculinity of Americanness. And that's, you know, that's a cultural thing over here.
1: Right, yeah. Well, what does that look like in the UK, do you think, uh, Dana – are you are you guys pressed pressed for on your masculinity in the uh, in the same way?
0: I don't think so. No, I, I don't know. I just I'm a, I'm a hermit. I just live in my workshop and do the podcast. <laughs> I I think I think it's not. As, I think the internet has a lot to do with it. Like you see, it, it depends on. I guess we live in this world where it depends on what circles you you're in and what Facebook decides it wants to show you, but. I think it can it can sometimes look as if can kind of like men are being attacked but especially I think for the average person who isn't the CEO of a big company, they're just you know, John who works in the fucking mill. I don't know, I've gone back twenty years, thirty years. But it's just you know, he's just he's in the mine. Let's go. But no, he's, he's just He's just the average joe who clicks onto Facebook or looks on the looks on the news and he sees this about men are doing this wrong men are doing that wrong like so and so has done this and and it's kind of it's like men are being bashed but like
2: well that's one way to see it or the guy in the mind could be like yeah man dude men stop doing that stop being like you know, that I, like, and then I'm not being like know?
0: I'm certainly not saying like whoa men we have it hard. Um but it's just I just think that kind of average average person who doesn't he controls very little. You know, he probably controls his own little his own little domain that he he lives in. And he could just see all this sees all this negative stuff and probably takes it quite personally when it's probably not really aimed at him, it's more aimed at the people who are abusing it or the people at the top who it, I don't think it always comes down to even men or women. I think it just comes down to money is probably the main issue, and it's whoever's at the top has got the money, wants to keep hold of that, doesn't want to share it, and that's probably the most toxic thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of like my thought on it is that just that average average person or average man might feel like they're attacked when they're just kind of going about their everyday business, going you know going to work, coming home.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's interesting to talk about and and, and consider because uh, like across cultures, um, uh, or between cultures, because uh, I, I like, um, as a as a Scandinavian man, I I I haven't felt particularly, you know, attacked or <laughs> anything from from the the, the, the modern developments. Um, so, so, I mean, the different Scandinavian countries have their own Me Too reckonings as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and those kinds of things. And, um, and, and I, I mean, obviously there is a translation of certain concepts here and there that comes directly from the U.S. into these cultures, but they're being worked through on their own terms, I think. Um, and and they have very similar uh, problems uh, to an extent, um, but but it always seems like it's more uh, extreme in the United States than elsewhere. Um, and this is a, this is something that that that's interesting too to consider that the the, uh, the ideas of like what, what is a man. In that context, and mm-hmm. what what are what are men looking for when they go to heathen stuff? What I mm-hmm. tend to find is like some randos talking about gender roles from the 1950s. And I'm like, that wasn't fucking gender roles in, in the Viking age. Like that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay, so so you didn't go back to you know wearing a floppy hat and and a suit and a tie, like because that's what that is, right? Like mean, that's not that's not <laughs> the
0: Viking age. <laughs> I think I think a lot of it is just hanging out with like minded people um and I just I think you know some men might go to it because it's just that community feeling of just hanging out with other dudes that think like you, and no matter like I don't think there's anything wrong for just wanting to hang out with other guys. Equally, you can just hang out with you know, hang out with anyone. But there is something I mean, I've I've played, I've been in sports teams all my life, and there is a different camaraderie around like being in a rugby team, and it's just like a bunch of, a bunch of guys are doing things. You you're on kind of the field, you're willing to put your your bodies on the line for each other. It's kind of a brotherhood, and I think that a lot of people search for that because it is. When I stopped playing rugby, I inherently just missed that straight away. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't miss getting beat up on the field. I just missed that closeness to a team of like other guys that think like me and we were kind of in this environment. Um, But I don't think that necessarily means that you dislike women in any way because I like to hang out with women just as much as as that. It's just, it's different things. I think you can have a situation where you have a bunch of guys you hang out with and then it's just another part of your life.
2: You know, one of the things perhaps that I could add to this is to put it in a broader context. When we're thinking about American heathenry in particular, we can trace it back to how it started as the Viking Brotherhood, right? Stephen McNallan starting the Viking Brotherhood right around the time in the 1970s when the second wave feminism was really loud, Right. And there were goddess spirituality movements and all of this new age stuff. And, you know, um, women were were, you know, getting loud and um, demanding, you know, equal treatment. And so like like the other men's movements of that time, like the Promise Keepers or other men's rights movements, which were, again, a backlash. To the front lash of these women's rights, women's spirituality movements, the Viking Brotherhood popped up as a way for these dudes of like mind to get together and sort of experience and, and reclaim a sense of manhood um, on their own terms. Now, I'm not making any value statements about that. I'm saying they they that's what they wanted to do. They needed that in that social, political, economic moment. They made a group. They did the thing. But heathenry has since then just only recently started to chip away at that baggage of being hyper masculine, masculine, dominant, sort of in 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 the aesthetic, in the way that heathens talk about heathenry as being sort of a warrior religion with warrior ethos, um, you know, to to a a group that embraces sort of, the perhaps more compassionate side of things to more family focused right um to include women in its leadership and certainly there there are some flavors of 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 conservative heathens that have reconstructed that old 1950s sort of women in the kitchen you know don't cut your hair wear a long skirt sort of uh you know Brand of of family um, using heathenry then is sort of again this this way to sacralize and justify those arrangements, as you could do with any faith system really. Um, so I mean, again, it's it's complicated.
1: Yeah, it's complicated with assholes being assholes. <laughs>
0: yeah, it just I think it just seems like there's different groups within heathens. Some of them, some of them are nice people. Some of them are not nice people who want to interpret it their way. And I don't think there's ever going to be, there's it, there's no like ultimate place where everyone's just going to agree. Everyone's, you know, everyone's free to interpret it and you're never going to get rid of these people who want to be twats.
2: No, but, but when they interpret heathenry in a way that, that dehumanizes <sighs> others, and and puts them in 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 imagined or actual uh like way of harm then then those guys can fuck right off oh for sure um they don't just get to be assholes without consequence right they have now interfered with other people's life chances and opportunities right by contributing to these larger systems that dehumanize people
0: i think that goes for just anybody in general it doesn't matter whether you're heathen or not if you if you act that way whether you're christian or muslim or anything or atheist if you act like that then you can fuck right off so i don't think it particularly matters that it's it's heathen it's just there's just shitty people in the world
2: well that's true but but heathens have kind of cornered the market on a particular kind of white supremacist assholery yeah that's
1: that's yeah i i very much agree with that so th- that that's that's really the problem that we're, that we're seeing with is sort of like this uh these faith movements belief systems whatever we want to call them um this is where uh, there's uh, one there's, there's a large group of them they're, 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 this this area this basically attracts those types of people Mm -hmm. Um, especially because of the association with the whiteness of it all. Right. And then adding to this, of course, uh, it also very much looks like uh, these groups, they uh, uh, tend to not really know what to do with them if they aren't aligned with the opinions that these assholes bring to the table. Um, Like for, for a very big portion of those people who are part of those, uh, relief communities, they're like, well, fuck, um, what do we do now? Um, we don't really know. And then it, it starts coming down to, you know, these, uh, um, uh, bullshit arguments about their free speech or, or there's like supposed to be room for everybody or something like that. And, uh, I mean, this is what those kinds of implosions have been, uh, seen again and again in in uh, mm-hmm. in, in established belief communities like uh, um there was a um i think it was in the early 90s in Sweden there was one that uh, a, a belief community that imploded because of that um, uh, my home country Denmark has had its own problems with that um and and of course there are plenty of organizations here in the US that have experienced these new things you can go to the UK and find similar things um so so it's a, it's a, it's a real problem um mm-hmm. and and it's also a problem that's really hard to uh, uh to to handle in 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 different ways if you ask me but yeah
0: that that's the thing how how do you handle it as sad as sad as it is to say it's almost an impossible task because it's not as if we're dealing with a club where you can say okay you're a twat give us back your club card you can't come in anymore we don't want you here it's it's this open ideology that anybody can identify with so whether even if 95% of people say fuck off we don't want you here that 5% you can't physically stop them or force them from identifying with it so like how do you how do you counteract against it other than just making it, just telling them that they've been really shitty.
2: Well, one of the things that heathens and heathen scholars have been working on for a few years now, myself and Mateus and and a bunch of others, is is thinking through ways that heathenry can be deliberately and proactively anti-racist, right? Um, and how how we can reclaim the narrative of 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 heathenry that's been co-opted by these assholes. Uh who use it for you know to to spouse ideas about white supremacy and Aryan you know um supremacy and and how we can you know make heathenry anti racist not just like we don't like racist, but like do that proactive sort of more activist work. Of reformulating it in that, in that way. Um, and, and it's been hard. I mean, it's not impossible. It's work. And of course, we all have jobs. And, you know, there's people doing this work. Um, it's probably not happening as fast as we'd all like to see it happen, but there's groups of scholars who even, un, who, who were even disconnected from the groups that were in Mateus that are also meeting and having conferences and thinking through, uh, you know, a way to, rid paganism of white supremacy in general because uh, you know it's heathenry it, it's got a special corner right but it it's also in other kinds of paganisms right
0: unfortunately i don't think the people who act like that are listening to things like this podcast or matthias or yourself no. i think they are the, they are the kind of people who latch onto the first information they find that fits them and then close their ears to everything else and just run with it so it's how do you tackle that and get to get to those people and reeducate them, um, and obviously for us we we've just been trying to like educate everyone else so then they can counteract these people with true information.
1: Well, so so this is where I would say that you know companies like yours, Daniel, uh, are a piece of that puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're a Viking branded company that uses non-white models. Already there, you're part of changing right. the visual uh, yep. aspects of what it means to be Viking associated.
0: Yeah, but I can't name another one. That's the that's the that's the other problem is that I think there's too many people, whether it's companies, bands. Or whatever else, who are scared of upsetting their bottom line, because they understand that there is a portion of people who, who will buy their products, listen to their music, that are racist, and they almost just turned a blind eye to it because they know that the money is going to come from from that area, so they don't want to necessarily do what we do, because it can have an effect on your money you're making. And unfortunately, money is just the fucking root of of all evil, so it's convincing more people, because I like went, um, who did we have on? I think I can't remember who I mentioned it to, whether it was, I think it might have been um, Ludwig from Fondheim. And it's like saying, you know, if he or Wadruna or Heilung or any of these groups like actively spoke out against racism, I imagine that the people in the background who actually run the show, you know, who, who pay them and the producers are suddenly going to go, oh, hang on a minute. Our fucking revenue is going to drop if you do that and it's just it's so sad to say and and to even speak about it, but it's probably the truth it's probably what happens
2: but there are then there's the rest of us who could do public facing scholarship who could do more public appearances you know i mean like you said who's we're preaching to the choir right like the people who really need to hear it aren't going to consume it but um you know there's it's 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 also a way to get out there to people who will hear it who maybe don't know anything about heathenry um, and and still want to consume stuff like this because they're not deliberately ignoring it, who then can be educated about what it what it is and isn't, so that the voices of those few extremists, um, when they hear it, they'll know that they don't stand for us, you know and and then it will further marginalize them. And so I think that work can be done. This podcast is a piece of that. I did an interview with N- with a, a, a local NPR station not too long ago, a couple weeks ago. That's a piece of it. Um, so, you know, I think that work can be done.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I've also, I, I was interviewed by uh, Arizona's uh, NPR station um, that, uh, that was asking me about that uh, jackass that with, the, yeah. with the horns. Yeah. I got asked that about stuff. that too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Before I say, before we wrap up, I'm just gonna go through a few questions. Um, so yeah the the first one is, how much do you think that uh, I'm gonna try and I'm terrible at reading. <laughs> I'm just gonna. Uh, okay. So it's it's how much do you think people are stuck in the idea of like monotheism? Um, and kind of like this idea that most people, I guess, are brought up with, especially in Christian countries, of mm-hmm. there being one God. And that's kind of like the right way to think about religion. Um, I guess e- even myself, you know, I was, like I said, I was atheist, but I was still, I went to Sunday school with my grandma when I was mm-hmm. a kid. So that kind of idea of a religion, that it was just one one God, was embedded in me. Um, so how much do you think that has... Like an effect or how many people think about it?
2: I'm sure it has a I'm sure it has a huge impact just on the way that people are socialized to experience and think of religion. But one thing that I noticed in American heathenry in particular is this practice of people taking patron gods, basically picking one god that's their favorite god and worshiping that god over all the other gods and really identifying with that god and developing a special relationship with that God, to me, is a bit of a reflection of that. But that's not to say that that's a historical either, right? Like that's, didn't people back in the day have their favorites? Like they picked favorites, right? The way they do it now, I think, is a little bit more of a monotheism thing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so if I can answer that, I would also Mm -hmm. say that the the emphasis on Odin as an all-father, in particularly in American heathen contexts, is also, uh, I think, an a- a expression of of that sort of like uh, enculturation into like a, a monotheistic idea of what what religion is.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that's very right. very widespread, and I think it's simply because people are like used to thinking about a god as a father right. and mm-hmm. and such.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: Yeah, it's comforting. It's comfortable, right? It's something they're mm-hmm. used to, and, and
0: mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And he's quite grand grandfatherly, isn't he? Let's be honest. It's very, it is very comforting. Grandfather Odin, <laughs> <With> both eyes. <laughs> uh, okay, the next one is: Do you think the popularity of bands like Wodruna and Heilung uh, have had an influence on people getting into heathen, into heathenism? Uh, it's, they say that they are an atheist, um, but they do have some sort of experience of a spiritual journey when a like a Wardruna or Heilung show. And just to add to that, I think with like the Fondam episode last week was a good example for myself, listening to his his album. Um, I, like I say, I'm agnostic, but I did have some sort of connection to his music and definitely felt like an emotional feeling from that that I couldn't explain, but it definitely kind of happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, if we want to carry the monotheism comparison, I think that those bands are for many contemporary heathens a form of spiritual music. Right? It's 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 transcendent and deeply, deeply meaningful. Um way beyond just like, hey, I like this music. It sounds cool. It's it is religiously significant. And uh to people who find that first and then do they find their way to heathen the read through it, I imagine that happens for sure, especially with Rodruna. I mean you can't really ignore ignore the heathenry in in their music um so i think that i think that that probably i I don't have the data yet maybe i do i don't know we should see it might be in there but um you know to to really know like whether people found the music first and then came to heathenry through that i imagine it happens um especially as that music becomes more popular
0: okay so one question jen was for you um was what impact do you did you hope that american heathen would have on the community when you were writing it and i guess to add on to that do you think it achieved that or you got what you were you hoping from
2: it um i i'm not sure i really published this with many hopes um i guess i i was if i was hoping anything it was that it would bring heathenry more legitimacy as an actual faith system that was not just sort of, you know, reenactment weirdos like, you know, muggles probably see it as. Um, I, I thought like this is cause it's a, you know, it's a scholarly work that it'll bring attention um, that that's respectful. Um, heathens. I, I don't, I think the initial reception by at least the people who were are, or take part in the work who were in the work who were interviewed for the work was to be like yay it's out um and then did they read it ah who has time right who has time for that
0: I think every book should be audiobook now yeah I think that's so I I honestly think that's such a big thing um, cuz I know for me like I work in in my little workshop and I just Love to put audiobooks on. That was the first thing when I asked Matthias where I could read your book. I just went on Audible to see if it was there because that's just easier for me. And I think that maybe is a case for a lot of people that I like to listen to them when they're driving. And that's maybe a testament to like why podcasts go so well.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know how easy it is to I get a book. Yeah, into I don't know audio.
2: if publishers. I don't know. Would they contact me and say, "Do you want to read this?" And for I, I haven't heard. I, I don't know how that happens. That that side of the industry is mm. a secret to me. Um. So so it came out, and and a lot of people didn't read it. Didn't have time. But and every time somebody says, "I've read your book and I really liked it," like I'm kind of shocked. Like it takes me aback That oh, you're one of the one of the few. Um, thank you for contributing to my twenty five dollars in royalties this year. <laughs> you know um and then and then what happened immediately as well was a bunch of these right-wing sort of men's rights guys reading it getting to the gender chapter becoming livid posting mean reviews flooding amazon with mean reviews and of course none of the people who liked it were reading it or would be nice have were writing reviews so they had other things to do um and so that was happening, and then, you know, people in message boards were just, in general, being being mean, being really mean. And then I got stalked by a guy who kept making different profiles to harass me via Facebook, and every time I would block it, he'd pop up again. And um, like we, when you teach in a university, like you're a public figure. People know where you work. Like your office has office hours posted. Like it's very, I'm very easy to kill. You know. So that that kind of made me basically just leave all the Facebook groups and just kind of turtle for a while. Um, and only now am I kind of resurfacing because a bunch of people keep asking me to do stuff. <laughs>
0: people suck don't let mm-hmm. people like that kind of it's i know it's hard not to um but you gotta try and kind of get rid of those people and shut them out of your mind um i mean especially with reviews it's only you tend to find it's always i only... didn't
2: i didn't even read them i don't even bother because i don't even bother
0: it's only shitty people that ever take the time and that's it's really unfortunate because it's usually only the bad ones that people can be asked to go and right it's the you know there's probably hundreds more people who really liked it but they just read it like it tell a few people about it put it down and that's it they don't go online and review it so anybody listening go review it
2: i only knew about the reviews because some of my friends were indignant on my like on you know and they would yeah. tell me like oh these people are writing these reviews and i was like yeah don't tell me i don't want to know, I don't want to know
0: any of that don't want to know. <laughs> okay last last one um I okay, mean, what what do the ri- the rituals consist of? And I imagine it's different for every for everybody. So how may it vary? I assume that kind of as a general thing. They didn't really give too much context.
2: Well, in American heathenry, there are two main kinds of rituals. There's uh, bloats and sambles, and bloats are just sort of a uh... A general ritual to honor a deity or a a season or or something like that. Um, And, you know, people circle around and they say words and there's mead. And um, usually people each, everybody in the circle gets to share, you know, um, their words of offering or honoring of a deity. Um, There's often fire. And, uh, a drinking horn that goes around and lots of shouting of hail, uh, and, um, then, you know, usually like some feasting and hanging out. And the sumble is similar, except involves even more drinking during <laughs> the ritual and it involves three rounds. Um, one round is to, uh, basically ancestors and heroes, One round is two gods or spirit, land spirits, and then one is oaths, boasts, or toasts. And then usually the last round is sort of a drunken revelry of singing and just telling everybody how much you love them and how happy you are to see them. And it's um, when when it involves a lot of people, it can go hours. (laughs) And uh, which I imagine everybody
0: gets a little bit more drunk as well.
2: And if they're really formal events, people dress more nicely and they gift each other. There's some public gifting that sometimes happens. Um, at least that's how it's happened in all the places in the States that I've gone to. And the rituals are kind of loosely based on... Um, I mean, let's be honest. MacNallan took Wiccan rituals and he reformulated them because that was the basis for what he had. And he tried to heathenize them. And then that was what heathens had to start. They have since adapted this main ritual, um, and just kind of uh played with it and made it their own in a lot of creative ways around the country, you know, depending on region. Um, some of them don't use the horn or like they don't use the hammer to call like the quarters or whatever, this very Wiccan. Instead they've decided that they're gonna just carry fire around because apparently that was in a book somewhere and said that's what they did back then. Um and so it's it, it's really it's really a, a fantastic way to build community. I think it's another sort of community and camaraderie, um, in in sort of that practice of of engaging with the sacred, um, and it can be it can be a lot of fun and it can be really intense. Like some of the some of my most intense experiences um, have been in heathen ritual.
1: I agree. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like that it, it can be very intense. It could also be some sort of like lame drunken therapy in the woods. Um yep. like <laughs> just, just, it, it can go there's in many different ways. There there's also a place for that.
0: <laughs> awesome. Let's let's wrap this one up. It's been fun. It's been fun. It was a little chaotic chaotic at the beginning. We are without a producer this time, so we've uh, had to revert back to the old ways. So it might be a little haphazard. But we managed. We got there in the end. Hopefully, we can put something together.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Jennifer.
2: Yeah, thanks for
0: inviting me. All right. Um, do you want to just let people know where they can find you? I don't know if you're back on social media, if you have a public um, one, or or just the book in general, if you want to. yeah i mean the book
2: the book is um it's on it's on amazon i mean um and of course wherever else people buy their books i'm sure their local bookstore could order it
0: Uh, what's the full book title
2: it is called american heathens the politics of identity in a pagan religious movement published by temple university press
0: there we go go and read it matthias where can everyone find you
1: well, you can always find me by my name, is Nordveg on Instagram. Um, yeah, go shout the uh, slurs at me uh, after this episode if you feel <laughs> like. <laughs> well, please don't I'll stick with that. <laughs> oh, actually, most people are nice on my Instagram. Um, it's mostly the horns of Odin that gets all the shit, right? Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you can find me there and, um, yeah, you you should also always, of course, go find the Nordic Mythology Podcast on Facebook.
0: Yeah, you can also find Nordic Mythology Podcast on Instagram. Obviously, you've got Hans Verden on there. Um my personal one is Daniel underscore one. Um our website, you can pick up some t-shirts and merch. They're gonna be with me soon, so they'll be getting posted out shortly. Um that's just nordicmythologypodcast.com. Uh, the Patreon, if you want to help us get to a hundred patrons. We're going to start our new Viking watch-along show where we're going to discuss the program episode by episode, talk about what's real, what's not real, what we like, what we don't like. So that should be fun. I think we're at 80 at the minute, so we've got got 20 more to go. Um, And then we'll be doing that. I think that's about it. Oh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're trying to grow that. So that's just Naughty Mythology Podcast on YouTube. Uh, Pop on there, watch some videos, watch some highlight videos. Hit subscribe and you'll get a notification every time we post a video. And I think that's it. I think I've got them all now. So Jennifer, thank you very much. This was this was fun.
2: Sure thing. Thanks guys.